Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. In terms of plants, one of the areas facing serious issues of sustainability is almond farming. Conventionally grown almond trees have problems with the amount of water used. This can be an issue especially as 80% of the world's almonds are grown in California, which has been facing droughts almost annually. Additionally, numerous pesticides are sprayed on conventional almonds. But we don't need to give up our love of this wonderful nut. There are many options for organic almonds grown using sustainable practices. Here to talk with me about almonds is Tim Richards, who bills himself as Chief Philosopher and Nut Alchemist at the Philosopher Foods. Philosopher Foods not only produces organic almond butters, but is also in the process of becoming regenerative organic certified. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and I know you've got a lot going on now with the rebrand you're doing, and it's one of the you can take time to appear on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. I think we connected back in 2015 at yes. the Western A. Price Conference. Yep, I remember that very well. And we've just kind of stayed in touch over the years, so it's nice to be able to finally be on your show after all these years. Yes, and it's great to see that you're doing well, because I know we reconnected earlier this year at the Online Natural Product Expo, and I was delighted to see that you were part of that. Yeah, yeah, we had the honor of being chosen as a finalist for the best new organic food of 2021 for our naked crunchy sprouted almond butter. So I felt like it was a good time to do expo for the first time, even though it was virtual. And we're getting ready to do our first in person expo next March. Yes, I'm looking forward to that because I haven't been to any of the expos since 2019. So I'm looking forward to that being in person again. Totally. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about how you first got involved with? making almond butter and founding Philosopher Foods, which originally was known as Philosopher Stone Ground. Yeah. So I was actually studying to be a holistic health coach back in 2012. And I was learning about all kinds of interesting health topics, including sprouting. And at that time, I learned that sprouting makes food sweeter, more digestible, and more nutritious, whether we're talking about nuts, grains, beans, or seeds as I'm sure you and many of your listeners are well familiar with. And I decided to try to make some sprouted almonds. And I did it. I sprouted them. I dehydrated them. And they were just amazingly delicious. They had a sweeter flavor. They had more of a pop. They were crunchier than raw almonds, just all around better. And I thought to myself, wow, this would make a really good almond butter. And I tried it. And lo and behold, it was the best almond butter I'd ever had in my life. And I shared some with my housemates. And they basically told me, dude, this is the best almond butter we've ever had. You got to make this a business. I was like, yeah, okay, we'll see. I don't know. I'm trying to be a health coach. We'll see what happens. And I just kind of kept making it for myself and my housemates, really. And they just got really into it. And one day, my housemate came up to me with a wad of cash in his hand. And he shoved <laughs> the cash in my hand. And he literally said to me, he's like, dude, I want to buy your almond butter. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Oh, interesting. You know, it kind of really got my attention. It was like, wow, there's actually a demand for this. People really want it. They're really loving it. In fact, he said he liked it better than chocolate covered strawberries. Mm. And I was like, wow. Okay. So then 2013 rolls around and California passes the cottage homemade food law and basically it legalizes selling food that you make in your home kitchen. 
And I thought to myself, wow, I could start this business for 75 bucks to get this permit. I already have all the equipment. And I basically just decided to go for it. That's the short version of the story. Yeah, well, it's a great story. And I think similar to a lot, I've heard a lot of these natural product companies have come from people that have a background in holistic health. And it makes sense that as you're working on advising other people about eating healthy, and there still are only a small amount of healthy products on the market that start making your own and that can become a business of itself. Exactly. Yeah, that was the other piece was I was actually a raw foodist for a brief stint in 2007. So I had already bought the dehydrators and I was basically sprouting almonds then and blending them into my own nut milk, straining out the pulp, making dehydrated almond flour bread, you know, all this kind of stuff. I was getting into food at that time. I also worked for a raw food company. So I got wholesale prices on nut butters. I got really into raw almond butter, raw cashew butter. I guess you could say that was kind of my genesis as working in the food business back in 2007. And I like to say that this business for me has kind of woven together three different parts of my life. So there's myself as a foodie, which had the roots there as a raw foodist. And there's also myself as a thinker. I actually did study philosophy in college. Mm -hmm. And, and then the third part of my life that was another thread that was really important to me was being an environmental activist. And so I actually, I worked for some environmental nonprofits immediately after graduation, trying to do conservation work. I was really concerned about the state of our planet and how to create a healthy environment for really all living organisms. And so when I had this happen to me, it was kind of a light bulb. It was like, wait a second. This is how I could actually tie together three of these really important threads in my life, all of which matter immensely to me, and actually make a living doing it. And so I basically got a light bulb go off, and it was like a eureka moment. It's like, wow, this is the way that I can actually bring my life's work into the world in a way that actually can make money and be a viable business in our society. And when first starting the business, did you have any kind of issue finding almonds that you could source from that were sustainable and that they would have enough of a supply to make your product? Well, we started, like I said, in the home kitchen. So it was very artisanal. I was living in a share house with seven other people. And I was literally sprouting almonds on the counter in this shared kitchen with seven other people and had two dehydrators in the pantry and a little stone grinder. The stone grinder can only grind two pounds at a time. So literally I was making it jar by jar by jar and I pushed thousands of dollars of revenue that way. (laughs) So I started on a very micro enterprise scale and I was living in Davis at the time. So I was in the heart of the Central Valley, the heart of almond growing country, literally surrounded by almonds as far as the eye could see and long straight rows with nothing but almonds growing. So I knew in my mind that there was something very wrong with this picture, right? This is not what a forest looks like. This is not how nature does things. This is a very human mind imposition onto the natural world. And as you alluded to earlier, there's a lot of dark sides to this rationalized way of farming, a lot of externalities such as toxic chemicals that are sprayed. They call them agricultural inputs in the industry. You can actually go on the California Department of Public Health website if you're interested, and you can go to the agricultural inputs page, and the state offers data on the agricultural inputs for every single agricultural commodity grown in the state. You scroll down to almonds, you'll see that there's over 40 million pounds of agricultural inputs applied annually to almonds grown in California, and this includes herbicides, this includes pesticides, this includes insecticides 
fungicides, and fumigants. And each one of those categories has multiple different types of chemicals that are applied, almost all of which are toxic to all life, including humans, some of which are actually carcinogenic to humans. So I knew that there was something very wrong with this picture of agriculture. And when I was looking for where to source, I was actually able to find several small local organic farms that I was introduced to early days of my business. And they were doing it differently. Instead of having a bare dirt orchard floor with nothing growing on it, they were actually growing grass. They were growing cover crops. Some of the cover crops were nitrogen fixing, which actually added nitrogen to the soil, which is needed by the almond trees to grow in excess. On conventional farms, you have to have a lot of synthetic nitrogen as an input because there's nothing on the soil. And so you know that creates its own issues with actually kind of killing some of the soil life as well as running off into our waterways and creating dead zones and rivers and lakes and oceans. So I found some farms that were doing it differently. And the one farm in particular, they were actually still hand harvesting on their orchard. So I'm sure a lot of people in your community are aware that it's actually a legal requirement by the U.S. government that all almonds grown in California have to be pasteurized before they're resold to the consumer. Yes. And so this is an issue that really bothered me, me as well too. As lots of people in the raw food community and lots of people in the West May Price community and anyone who cared us about real food basically believes, right, that we should have the ability just to eat food that grows off the tree. Absolutely. And eat it off. And why not? That's our natural right as living beings on this planet. But unfortunately, there were two outbreaks of salmonella in 2001 and 2004 that led the Almond Board of California to ask the USDA to implement this mandate. So there was no more problems that would cause the industry to lose face with the public. And the USDA complied, created the mandate in 2007. Since then, we've not been able to access unpasteurized almonds unless we're consumers buying directly from the farmer in quantities of 100 pounds or less per person per day. And that has to be directly from the farm at farm stands, at a farmer's market, or through the farmer's website. And so I found one of such farm that was still offering unpasteurized almonds. And the interesting thing to note is the reason that the salmonella outbreak happened was not because almond agriculture is in any way inherently dangerous. We've been doing this for millennia and salmonella has not been making people sick from tree nuts for millennia. It's a very new thing. And it has to do with the way that the harvest is conducted. So instead of doing it the industrial way, which is you shake the trees with these tree shakers, they literally grab the trunk of the tree and shake it. And then all the nuts fall onto the ground. And then they go through the orchard with street sweepers, essentially, that actually sweep up all the nuts off the floor. And so, as you can imagine, there's all manner of debris that gets sweeped up with these nuts. Anything on the orchard floor, dust, dirt, animal poop, you name it, it's going to get sweeped up with the almonds. And so there's a potential for contamination. And also, with this particular instance that happened in 2001-2004, the particular farms let the almonds sit for several days before they even swept them up. So they had ample chance to get infected with all kinds of things. Yikes. And that's exactly what happened. So it was an issue that was created by industrial agriculture, not by almond farming. And therefore, this orchard did a different approach. They actually took sticks by hand and would beat the trees to have the almonds fall onto tarps. So the almonds would never touch the ground. And since they're doing it by hand, they have complete control and oversight of the process. They're very aware that there's nothing foreign that they're sweeping up onto the tarps. It's just what's falling off the trees. There's a branch that falls, you move it. They're basically ensuring by doing it by hand that it's a safe product that you can eat unpasteurized with no issue. And indeed, they've had no issues ever on their farm. And if you think about it, it makes sense. That's how it has always been done. It's never an issue. 
in history until industrial ag came along. So that was a very long-winded answer to a very simple question, but I'll let you take it over. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the issue of pasteurization of almonds. That's a very important point to bring up. And I think in general with foods, that is what makes foods denatured. It's not the farming that does it. It's the industrial agriculture, I think, that can be applied to so many foods. The first one that comes to mind, of course, is milk. I mean, and that's also dealing with pasteurization, that it was industrialization made unpasteurized milk dangerous. It was not the farming itself of raw milk. And my friend Mark McAfee, he can talk all about that. And also for a time, they did sell raw almonds. And whereas their raw milk is sold both in stores at farmer's markets, they would only sell their raw almonds at the farmer's market because they didn't want to have to pasteurize the almonds when they Mm -hmm. went to the store. That's correct. So yeah, the big issue, well, Strill's trying to figure out how to work with it as a company. Initially, we were so small that we could fly under the radar. And so we literally just bought from this orchard because I felt no ethical or moral issues with buying from this farm because I knew exactly what they were doing. I knew that there was no chance of contamination and I just decided to break the law. (laughs) But, you know, at a certain point, you reach a certain size. As we grew, I had to move out of the home kitchen, obviously, moved into the back of the local restaurant, eventually moved into our own production facility. And when you start to become inspected by the state, they're very well aware that this is a requirement for food processing. And so by 2015, I was already on the map as a food producer. I had to switch from California almonds to Spanish almonds to be truly unpasteurized. And so we actually were doing European almonds for several, several years. And that's an interesting subject we can get into if you would like. But the European almonds have their own set of issues. And so we were pretty happy with them from 2015 until the end of last year. But at the end of last year, it became very clear that we had a lot of issues with the European almonds that were not likely to be resolvable. So what happened was because there is lower quality control standards in Spain for almond cultivation than there is in California, we were getting a lot of issue with, first of all, the product's just dirtier. It has more dirt on it. It has less cleanliness applied in the processing, which isn't an inherent issue. But when the almonds are then shipped on a boat in bags that are not necessarily airtight, you actually get higher levels of yeasts and molds on the almonds. And so I actually tested some almonds from Spain and found elevated levels of yeast and mold, as well as mycotoxins. So that was highly concerning to me as someone who believes in clean food was that there was this issue that was happening as a result of shipping and as a result of packaging and as a result of processing that I didn't have control over as a handler. And so that made me uncomfortable. Another issue that we had was we actually had a lot of debris in the almonds. And so if we were doing a form of grinding, for example, that was industrial, where we're grinding thousands of pounds an hour and a super high-powered metal processing machine, the shells would just get obliterated. And in fact, when you eat industrially produced almond butter, you're eating a good, I would say, at least 7% of foreign matter that just gets ground into oblivion into the butter. And this is because the grade of almonds used in most commercial almond butter is called natural, whole, and broken, which means there's a certain percentage of broken almonds and foreign matter that can be legally allowed into that grade of almond. And so it's just something for consumers to be aware of when they're buying nut butters. You want to look for ones that are artisanally produced, preferably by stone grinding, because stone grinding is lower speed, lower temperature, 
traditional form of processing that we have a 30,000 year history of use with as a species. So our bodies are adapted to eat food that is stone ground. Whereas, you know, we've only had these high speed metal cutting machines for maybe 100, 200 years at the most. And so there's a higher chance of oxidation, of denaturization of fats and proteins. And basically, I've even heard it's possible that there is heavy metal contamination when you have these metal blades hitting each other at such high speeds that they're grinding the food products. So a lot of reasons to consider artisanal methods of production when you're choosing any food, but especially nut butters. But back to my main point, I was essentially finding an issue with the Spanish almonds where we were actually getting a lot of shells in the almonds. And, you know, for lucky, you can steal the shell before you bite down on it. But we did have some consumers that were not so lucky and injured their teeth. And so for me, that was kind of the last straw. Yeah, I on can the see Spanish. that. I was like, I like unpasteurized. I like the idea of purity. But in reality, we're having consumers that are hurting their teeth on the almonds. And we're also having issues with mold and mycotoxin contamination. I think it's time to switch. And so I made the hard decision last fall to actually switch back to California. And of course, at my current scale, I can't do unpasteurized because we're just too big at this point. But I started researching it to see, you know, is it true that steam pasteurization is so bad, blah, blah, blah. So far in all the research that I've found on the topic, the peer-reviewed scientific research, I have not been able to find any difference in things such as the total polyphenol count. I also did not find any difference in bioavailability of nutrients and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, I'm open to, to seeing any research that proves otherwise, but I think basically I was being challenged to see if my pure food philosophy would stand up in this very complicated, nuanced reality picture of like all the issues I've had in Spanish. And then the fact that California, it's laser sorted. You know, the, the almonds are laser sorted by machine. It's a technology that Spain does not employ. So the amount of farm material in USDA number one supreme grade almonds, it's needle in a haystack. If you find a shell, it's like, wow, something really went wrong there. So that's a little bit of a story on complications and nuances in the almond crop. <laughs> I know with dairy, there's different levels of pasteurization because you see some milks where it says ultra pasteurized. Is it similar for almonds where there's different levels of pasteurization and you can source almonds that are pasteurized at a lower level? Well, there's different types of pasteurization. Mm -hmm. So if you are going to be shopping for almonds, always buy organic because if for nothing else, other than the fact that all the conventional almonds are being chemically pasteurized by a chemical called propylene oxide, and that's a carcinogenic chemical that was so carcinogenic that it was banned as an additive in racing fuel. And here it is being sprayed on almonds to sterilize them and millions of pounds a year. So even if it's only for that reason alone, I always recommend organic because organic almonds are steam pasteurized. So it's basically a quick surface heat treatment of steam on the outer part of the almond. And it's my belief that that steam does not reach the center of the almond. And so it's basically a surface treatment that kills what's on the surface, but doesn't denature the proteins and the enzymes in the center of the almond. So there are different types, but within the steam pasteurization, I don't know whether or not there are actually different temperatures or what have you. There's also infrared pasteurization. There's also radiation and radiofrequency radiation pasteurization, which to my understanding still heats almonds to some degree. There's no perfect solution, but we do have a technology that we're looking into. And also in regards to pasteurization, because I know that 
almonds can't be sold in the store if they're unpasteurized or what's called unpasteurized because I know that they have raw almonds in stores that aren't really raw. So are you able to have unpasteurized almond butter in there because of the process of making it into butter? It allows it to keep it technically unpasteurized when they start as almonds. Well, so you bring up an interesting point. Any almond that is grown in California that is pasteurized, they're able to actually legally call it raw in the store. So you'll see almonds that say raw from California. You should know that's a lie. That is completely legal to call it the wrong thing. The only way around this law is, like I said before, if you buy directly from the farmer, 100 pounds per person or less per day. As a consumer, you can do that. If I, as a company, do that, then it's not legal for me to then go resell it to the consumer without pasteurizing it first. So the only legal way is for me as a company to do it is to buy those unpasteurized almonds from anywhere outside the U.S. So I can get unpasteurized almonds from Turkey. I could get them from Palestine. I could get them from Italy, from Spain, literally anywhere else in the world that almonds are grown. It's legal for me to import unpasteurized almonds. I just can't use unpasteurized California almonds. Oh, that's very interesting and strange, yet somehow doesn't surprise me because there are some very weird food laws like that. And the funny thing is it's also legal for almond farmers to export unpasteurized almonds. They just can't sell them within the United States. Interesting. So they don't have to do any kind of pasteurization or radiation process in terms of importing the almonds from other countries over here? No. That's interesting too, because I know a lot of products have to be pasteurized or radiated in some form. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's a very strange world with the almonds. And like I said, we had unpasteurized almonds that we imported for years from Spain. No problems from the government or any authorities whatsoever. Everyone acknowledged it was legal. So in addition to your almonds being organic, as you talked about earlier, you have a number of other certifications such as glyphosate, residue free. What made you decide to choose some of these certifications? Yeah, so with the glyphosate, when I was looking at the agricultural inputs, I noticed that the number one agricultural input by weight was glyphosate, also known as Roundup, chemical produced by Monsanto, now owned by Bayer, that is the number one most applied chemical on agriculture and lawns and schools and parks in the United States. I think it's the number two most applied chemical in the world. We're actually spraying so much of this stuff in the U.S. that it's a gallon per person in the United States that's applied every single year. And so this chemical is highly concerning to me because it was recently recognized by the state of California as a known carcinogen and regulated by Proposition 65, which states that any product sold that contains a known carcinogen recognized to the state of California must be labeled as such to the consumer. And I thought to myself, huh, okay, if this is the number one agricultural input, not only on almonds, but on every single agricultural commodity in the U.S., how is it that this is not being labeled? Doesn't it legally have to be labeled under Prop 65? So I decided to do a little experiment, and I ended up buying several almond butters off the shelf, and I ran a test to see the levels of glyphosate in various types of almond butters. Some were conventional, some were organic, some were raw, some were roasted. I wanted to see where the industry stood in terms of how much glyphosate is ending up in people's food. And what I found was really unsurprising. And it was basically showing me that every single organic almond butter that we tested had levels under the quote unquote 
safe threshold of 10 parts per billion. And every single conventional product that we tested had levels above this quote unquote safe threshold of 10 parts per billion. And so that was very concerning to me because here we are, most people think, right, that, oh, you know, as long as you buy the dirty dozen organic, you can buy the clean 15 and that's fine. You know, the clean 15, you can get not organic and you're fine. And this is kind of showing that that's completely wrong. This is showing that for certain chemicals, such as glyphosate, which is a water-soluble chemical, this chemical, anytime it's sprayed and then it attaches to any form of water, whether it's from irrigation, rainfall, what have you, it binds to that water. And then it goes anywhere that that water goes. So what's happening in the almond orchards is when the glyphosate is applied, often just to the root of the, the base of the orchard floor, to keep out the chemicals. As soon as any kind of water from the irrigation is applied, it binds to the glyphosate, goes down into the root of the plants, is taken up through the roots of the plants, through the trunk of the tree, through the branches, into the seed, which are the almonds. And so literally the glyphosate is ending up inside the almonds through the water pathways of the tree. And so that just kind of flies in the face of most people's understanding. They think that it's getting sprayed on the plants and that because there's a shell and a hull around the almond, you're safe, right? Right. But no, it's coming directly in through the tree, ending up in your food. And we've proven this scientifically. So to me, my jaw dropped. I was like, wow, this is information that people need to know. And we need to actually declare ourselves glyphosate residue free because we're testing at low enough levels. Again, there was glyphosate even in the organic stuff. Unfortunately, that's how pervasive this chemical is. I mean, it's in 77% of the rainfall and air samples taken in a lot of regions of the U.S. So it's very pervasive. It's unavoidable. Like I said, it gets in the water system. So we're highly contaminated in the U.S., pretty much nationwide with glyphosate. So it's unavoidable to get some amount in your food because of that. But again, there's this 10 parts per billion threshold below which it's believed to be safe. So if you do meet that requirement, then you can get what's called glyphosate residue free certified. And this is a certification offered by the Detox Project. And I decided, hey, no one in the nut butter industry or almond industry is talking about this at all. And we're going to become the first nut butter company to have all of our products glyphosate residue free certified. And so that's exactly what we did back in June. And we have to regularly monitor our products. We do testing of every single item that we produce. And we have to continually prove that it's staying under that threshold. And I wanted to do that to make a statement to the public that whether or not you're aware of it, if you're eating conventional food, you're getting poisoned and friends don't let friends eat poison. So <laughs> we're going to be a friend here and let you know that our product is actually free of poison. And the interesting thing to note is there are some organic products that are highly contaminated with glyphosate above that 10 parts per billion threshold. If you look at chickpeas, for example, there was a big outroar recently that even organic hummus and organic chickpeas were having insane levels. We're talking like, I think, hundreds of parts per billion of glyphosate in them. And that's because that crop is so contaminated that there's so much being sprayed on the conventional that it's probably drifting over to the organic and just totally contaminating these areas where the chickpeas are grown. So I always say that, you know, organic is a good first step, yeah, but you all want to test too. it. You want to test it to be scientific and actually understand what's the chemical constituents of the food that you're consuming. Organic is a great start, and it's definitely good just in terms of people learning what that means and learning about the idea that 
pesticides are sprayed on foods. But there's also a lot to go from beyond organic because in addition to, as you were talking about, of glyphosate getting into organic foods, there are also a number of pesticides that are allowed to be sprayed on organic certified products. And I think that this is the reason why now we're looking at the idea of regenerative organic. That's correct. Yeah. So we're actually in the process of exploring regenerative organic certification ourselves. Currently, we're using one regenerative organic certified ingredient, which is our coconut oil and the alchemy sprouted almond butter blends that we create, which has coconut oil, vanilla, and a little bit of salt in there. So basically, yeah, regenerative is the next level beyond organic. It's making sure that in addition to not spraying toxic and carcinogenic chemicals, we're actually building the soil. So we want to increase that soil organic matter by feeding nutrients that feed the microorganisms in the soil, which build topsoil over time rather than erode it. And it also includes animal welfare standards. It includes social welfare standards, making sure that people are paid above a living wage, you know, beyond fair trade prices even. And so it's the most holistic certification that I'm aware of for promoting the flourishing of all life that's involved in any given agricultural system. And so when I saw this and the holistic thinking behind it, I knew we have to be, again, pushing the envelope. Our goal is to promote the flourishing of all life. That's plain and simple what we're trying to do as a company, because as we're all aware, a lot of business has done the opposite. And so we want to prove that business can actually be used as a tool to promote the flourishing of organisms and ecosystems, not just humans, but also the rest of life, pollinators, soil microbes, plants, animals, you name it. We as living beings want to promote the flourishing of other living beings. And so that's why we're trying to become regenerative organic certified. And it's a challenge. You know, almonds, there's currently no regenerative organic certified almond orchards. I know of only two orchards that are trying to become certified as such. And again, they're in the process, but it's probably not going to be fully certified until 2023. But it's important to talk about. It's important to have as a North Star. And we are pushing towards it with our coconut butters. We have some suppliers lined up that are regenerative organic certified for the coconut shreds that we buy and also for the cacao and coconut sugar in our chocolate coconut butter blend. So we'll probably get those products to be regenerative organic certified by next year, hopefully, if all goes well. And then the almond butter should be by 2023. There are a few different regenerative organic certification programs. Are you looking at one in specific? Yeah, we're looking currently at the one that was pioneered by the Rodale Institute in combination with Dr. Bronner's and Patagonia. So that's the actual ROC label, but we're also interested in the other ones such as Soil Carbon Initiative, the SCI. That's more of a results-driven certification than a process-driven certification, which I like because basically we want to know that what we're doing has a functional outcome of being regenerative regardless of the practices. So again, we don't want to see any chemical spraying, for example, I would never consider that to be regenerative on almost any circumstance that I can think of. But rather than being so prescriptive about you have to check off all these practices like organic, it's more about results, like how much soil organic matter did you gain? How much water holding capacity is there in your soil? And so on and so forth. Just a side note, as we build soil, it actually increases the water retention capacity of that soil. So we can get away with less water in almonds. You know, obviously we're in a drought and almonds are a very thirsty crop. And the truth is that with regenerative practices, we can use a lot less water. In fact, most people don't even realize that almonds can be dry farmed. 
and almonds in Spain are largely dry farmed to this day. And it actually started that way in California too, when the Spanish missionaries brought over their almond trees. You can still find a lot of wild dry farmed almonds up in the hills in areas like Cape Valley, Paso Robles. These are two of the historical dry farming capitals of California. Fortunately, this method of agriculture was abandoned in California in the 1930s and 40s when water became freely and cheaply available to farmers throughout the Central Valley. And they realized, hey, we get 10x the yield when we use a lot of water instead of dry farm. So I get it from the farmer's perspective. Land is very expensive in this state and it's a tough sell to say, oh, you guys should yield 10x less almonds just because it's bad for the water table. It's an, an impossible argument to make to a farmer, and I wouldn't try to, but I would say that the farmers should consider looking at regenerative organics to increase that soil sponge under their trees because they're going to make a lot better use of that water and need a lot less of it. I think decreasing the water use in order to grow almonds is the key because that is often the main criticism I hear of almonds, even more so than the pesticides is how much water is used. And it's become a big issue in California with the droughts we've had the past several years. Absolutely. I would not deny that for a second. But I do take issue with people that say we shouldn't grow almonds at all. Because fact is, almonds are actually one of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. According to one scientific study that I can share with you so you can link to our episode notes. There is a network analysis of over a thousand different foods done. And the scientists in that study, after looking at all of these variables of nutrition in relationship to other variables, a very complicated network analysis. Basically, they found that almonds were the single most nutrient-dense food on that list of a thousand foods that they studied. And so my argument is because of that, this food is actually meant to play an important role in the human diet. And the way that the agriculture has been done historically has been not ideal, but we can improve that. And as we do, we're going to be actually improving the nutrient density of what's already the most nutrient dense food on the planet. And so it's about, you can't demonize the tool, right? It's how you use it. So we can use the tool in such a better way to have such better results. And I would argue that by virtue of being a perennial crop, almonds actually have a role to play in the regeneration movement because they're trees. You know, they don't need to be tilled every single year. They can actually store carbon in the soil long term if we manage the soil so that we're not tilling it and releasing the carbon every couple of months. There's a lot that we can do to actually use almonds as a tool for healing not only the climate and the soil, but also for being one of the most powerful human food dietary staples that there are on this planet. It's similar really with any other food that so often the current methods of how the food is produced and grown is criticized for being unsustainable. But when you go back to nature, we've been growing them for so long and that wasn't always a problem. So it's really about returning the ways of how they were originally grown. That's correct. Yeah, as far as I understand it, almonds actually originated in the Himalayas. And they were sort of a high-altitude tree that grew wild in very marginal soils at high altitude. And humans sort of discovered them. They were actually too bitter to eat initially because they have a high level of amygdalin. And amygdalin is a cyanogenic glycoside, which means that when you chew it, it actually converts into cyanide. And so some of the Spanish almonds still get that bitter flavor. It's, It's like the amaretto flavor, that sort of bitter note sort of cherry tasting note. That's actually a residual hereditary trait from wild almonds where they were so bitter humans couldn't even eat them. And after thousands of years of cultivation and selection, we finally got into a point where we could eat them and they were less toxic 
And of course, today we have varieties that are completely sweet, such as the non-parel variety, and the level of amygdalin is almost non-existent. So yeah, it's a very interesting, long-standing relationship we've had with this plant. It's been a very important food historically. It was actually considered a symbol of wealth by kings in the Middle East, and it was heralded as a sacred food because it would allow long trips across the desert and things like this. So I do view it as that. I view it almond as a sacred food that we have to learn how to use and be in right relationship with to promote the flourishing of all life. That's kind of where I stand with it. Yes, you've touched a little upon now the health benefits of the almond. And as your specialty is almond butter, what do you think makes almond butter a healthy butter compared to other types of nut butters? Well, I guess the first thing to compare it against would be peanut butter. Yes. Even though peanut butter, not technically, uh, not it's a legume, but yeah, <laughs> a lot of people think of it still as yeah, nut butter. Peanut butter is still far and away the most consumed nut butter in the U.S. And there's surprisingly a lot of people that have never even heard of or tried almond butter. And it's just peanut butter is sort of the thing. Peanut butter, I think that there's some issues with it that result from the way that it's grown. For example, because it's a legume, it's grown underground. So being that it's dark and under a wet soil, naturally there's mold issues. So when you're looking at peanuts, aflatoxin is a very big concern. Unfortunately, the aflatoxin concern is actually increased in organic peanut butter because there are no fungicides applied. So interestingly enough, conventional peanut butter has lower levels of aflatoxin typically than organic because of this fungicide use. I'm not in any way endorsing conventional agriculture. It's just an interesting note here. So aflatoxin is a very big issue in peanut butter that it has had many issues with in the past. Aflatoxin, of course, is very it's a neurotoxic, hepatotoxic, mycotoxin, and it's something that we want to avoid as much as possible in our diet. Also, peanut butter, when it's roasted, creates acrylamide, which is another carcinogenic substance. So I would say anyone who's looking to reduce their intake of carcinogens should reduce their intake of roasted food of any kind, whether it's roasted nut butter or even just roasted toast, roasted vegetables, roasted meat, anything that's roasted and creates that browning reaction. I think it's called the Marfan reaction. Essentially, that browning is the generation of carcinogenic acrylamide. And so acrylamide is another Prop 65 controlled substance, as is aflatoxin. And unfortunately, it's not being labeled like it should be. So there's actually been some lawsuits against nut butter companies for withholding that information from the consumer. And so I think it's, again, there's a lot of different nuts and nut butters, but I think what's most important is how they're processed. And so when we're talking about processing, we want to tend to... Avoid roasted, as I said, for the reasons of the carcinogenic acrylamide. Raw is probably a better choice in that department because it's not being roasted. You're missing out on that acrylamide. So I would say raw is a slightly better choice over roasted for that reason. But, you know, nature is not really trying to design raw nuts and seeds to be consumed by humans because ultimately nature wants those trees to end up in the ground and become plants. So there's certain substances that plants have adapted to put into its seeds to try to discourage animals from eating them. Several substances like oxalic acid, 
for example, and phytic acid and things like this. So I would actually say that routing is a preferred form of processing over both raw. Yeah, I would definitely say that. Yeah. <laughs> and anyone who follows Weston Price knows about the benefits of sprouting. Right. So I'm preaching the choir here. Obviously, I'm also biased because I make a living off of sprouted almond butter. So yeah. <laughs> there's a disclaimer. <laughs> well, you're not going to get any disagreement with that because that's also talked about on this podcast. So totally. that is part of what this podcast is done for is to promote the benefits of sprouting and also fermenting and soaking. Yeah. So and then the other piece. So obviously, first you need to sprout it. But then if it's going to last any amount of time, you also need to dehydrate it. And so we choose low speed, low temperature dehydration. Again, we want to avoid not only the generation of acrylamide, but also we want to make sure that we're denaturing as few of the fats and proteins and enzymes as possible. So we're low temperature dehydrating those almonds. And then finally, the third step is stone grinding, as I mentioned earlier. Low speed, low temperature, traditional processing, again, preserving those nutritional benefits of sprouting, preventing the denaturation of fats and proteins, and actually just making a better, tastier product. For example, it's so creamy that you can drink it out of a jar if you're so inclined. It's silky smooth. It doesn't stick to through with your mouth. It's down to 15 micron particle size, so your tongue can't really differentiate the particles, so it flows like a liquid. Or if that's too creamy for you, we also have a crunchy, and I would argue that we have the best crunchy nut butter on the market. And it's all thanks to the stone grinding. So yeah, those are the main differences in how the processing is handled so that we make sure the nut butter is nutrient dense. And you touched upon earlier your coconut butter, which you sell in addition to the almond butter. In terms of sourcing the coconuts, what do you look for? Yeah, so for the coconuts, it's a similar thing. We're looking for orchards that are not just monoculture plantations. And we wanna ideally have orchards that look like a jungle because coconuts come from a jungle environment in the tropics. And so the more that that farm can look like a jungle, the better off everything's going to be. So we actually, as I said, we're in the process of hopefully sourcing our next shipment from regenerative organic farms where they are growing multiple different types of products below the coconuts. Coconuts are more of a canopy tree. They're typically growing bananas underneath that. They're typically growing papayas. They're typically growing turmeric, ginger, cassava root. Basically, it's a whole system. And that's what we're looking to source from for the coconut. And we're also looking not only for it to be organic, but also fair trade. And now we're looking for regenerative organic as well. Right. And you said that that was where the first regenerative ingredient you found was from the coconuts. Correct. Yes, that's accurate. And so currently you have the almond butter, you have the coconut butter. Are you looking at adding any other products either different type of butter, another type of butter that you'd sell with them, or new flavors of the nut butters, or even new products using regenerative almonds? Totally. Yeah. So just to give you an overview of the existing line, we have our sprouted almond butter that comes in three flavors. There's the naked, which is just the plain sprouted almonds. Then there's the alchemy, which has the coconut oil, vanilla, and real salt added to it. And then the third flavor is chocolate, which has the sprouted almonds, 100% cacao paste, vanilla, coconut sugar, and cacao butter in it, as well as a tinge of that real salt. So those are the three flavors that we offer. We also offer creamy and crunchy textures of each of those three flavors. And then for the coconut butter, we have a plain coconut butter and then a chocolate coconut butter, which we're calling Cocotella, about new products. So we're actually in the process of developing a patent-pending fermented almond and almond butter product. To my knowledge, there's no cultural precedent of fermentation of almonds, and there's also no commercial precedent. So 
We're looking to be the first almond butter on the world market that's fermented. When I was talking about the food safety earlier, how we were trying to get around the pasteurization issue, we actually believe that we're going to be able to patent this as an alternative to pasteurization because we have research that suggests that fermentation is actually more effective at sterilization than pasteurization is. And we intend to become certified by the Almond Board of California as an alternative to pasteurization for our fermented process. So basically the idea is that when you pasteurize almonds, you're just killing everything. And if you incompletely kill what's on the surface of the almonds, it could grow back and it can make people sick. However, what fermentation is doing is you're actually actively seeding the almonds with an abundance of beneficial bacteria that are going to outcompete anything that's on there that might be considered bad bacteria. And so you're basically creating bacterial warfare on the surface of the almond, if you will. And it's ensuring that you're crowding out any chance for there to be bad bacteria left on those almonds. And so, of course, as you know, it's not just good for food safety, and it might allow us to get around the pasteurization rule. We might, for the first time, be able to use legally unpasteurized California almonds if we are approved by the almond board with this process. But also the beneficial side effect is that we end up with more bioavailable and even more nutrient-dense almonds. So again, we have to do research on the products. They're still in development. We're still pre-launched. We're hoping to launch in quarter one of next year. But the hope is that through the fermentation process, we're actually able to break down some of those anti-nutrients I mentioned, like oxalic acid, phytic acid tannins to a greater degree than we are through sprouting even. And furthermore, that we can even have the microbes play the role of breaking down some of the toxins like the mycotoxins and the glyphosate. All of that has been shown to be reduced by fermentation as well. So the goal of the fermentation is really to reduce the anti-nutrients, reduce the toxins, increase the nutrients, and increase the digestibility of the almonds. So we're really excited to announce that we have those products in the pipeline and we hope that you all try them as soon as they're available. That makes sense that you may be able to not have to do pasteurization if it is fermented because if you look at any fermented product that typically starts from raw and in fact fermentation is still considered raw and even in something like raw milk the one raw milk product that is able to be sold across state lines is aged cheese which is essentially a fermentation process. Nice. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That makes total sense. It's an analogy. And I know that now there's a movement for regenerative chocolate. Have you been looking into sourcing some regenerative chocolate? We have, yeah. I've actually been in dialogue with Dr. Bronner's. Yes. They just started doing some of their... I thought they were regenerative organic. They're not yet certified, but my understanding is that they are coming from regenerative organic orchards. Yeah, mine too. Some of the same orchards where they're getting their regenerative organic coconut. So yeah, I've definitely been in dialogue with them. It sounds like the supply might be a little bit too limited to be able to accommodate more than their own needs. But I'm part of an extensive network of chocolate importing companies that are all on the regenerative quest. So I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to source some regenerative organic certified cacao here within the next year or so. Yes, Dr. Bronner is doing a great job with the regenerative chocolates and the regenerative chocolates are quite good. And in fact, I remember back at the Virtual Natural Products Expo, we had to move our meeting to another time because we realized that when we originally scheduled it, that was when Dr. Bronner's talk was going on and we both wanted to listen to them. Exactly. Did you end up hearing it as well? I did, yeah. Uh, 
Did you get some That's of the sample bars they sent? I did, I, yes. Wonderful. I know, they're delicious. They do great work. And I love the book that they wrote about how they created a regenerative supply chain. It's just amazing to read that story. Oh, yes. Book's great. Yeah, they sent me that too after talking to them. And yeah, it's great what they do. I mean, they have all kinds of products. I know traditionally they were known for soaps, but then, yeah, they've expanded to a coconut oil and now chocolate. Yeah, they're definitely look up to them as a company. They're a total role model for me. Me too. So where can people find Philosopher Foods in terms of stores and online? Well, actually, there's quite a lot of places. So your listeners should be able to find us on Amazon, on our own website. Those are two outlets where they can get Basically, our whole product line shipped nationwide. We also were about to launch on Thrive Market with our Naked Creamy and Naked Crunchy sprouted almond butters. So anyone who's a Thrive Market member will be able to access our products there. They're going to be on sale the first two weeks that we launch, which is, I believe, Halloween through November 13th. And other than that, we're in a lot of stores on the West Coast, primarily from San Diego to Seattle, mostly independent stores, natural grocery cooperative type stores. But we are in Whole Foods in Northern California, and we're also on certain online delivery services like Good Eggs that are regional and KPA Organic Farm Fresh to You. For those in the Bay Area, we're sold on Real Food Bay Area. It's a nice little West Nay Price friendly distribution cooperative. And yeah, we're also at farmer's markets if anyone is local to Santa Cruz County. Yes. Yeah, so we're just about out of time, but before we go let the listeners know where they can go online and on social media to learn more about the Philosopher's Foods. Yeah, so people can check out our new website. It's philosopherfoods.com and learn about everything that we're doing as well as purchase our products directly from us, which we always appreciate. And they can also find us on Instagram. The handle is philosopher foods, And we're still setting up the Facebook page, but it's going to be by the same exact name, Philosopher Food. And we look forward to being in touch with all of you, hearing your questions, hearing your concerns, your comments, your feedback. And yeah, we want to collaborate to make the most regenerative food system that we possibly can. Tim, thank you for coming on the program. So much I've learned about almond farming. And I think a lot of things for listeners to think about with the future of almonds. Yeah, I appreciate you holding this platform, Aaron. And thanks for educating people about how to get the realest food on the planet. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of this show are now released every Wednesday. Next week, I interview licensed dietitian and nutritionist Pam Schoenfeld. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus... All of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed. <laughs>